This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Carol Edgarian, author of the novel, Vera. I never want characters to be representative or stereotypes. So I always try to work against them by giving them both capability and complexity. We'll be back with Carol Edgarian in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents the continuation of close to eight years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions and craft, This show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and a monthly newsletter. In addition, there are surprise thank you gifts that I offer when you enroll as a patron and spontaneous mailings like a bookmark all my patrons received this January, embedded with flower seeds. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me in the production of this show. So why not make today the day to show your support? Why wait? Beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is Carol Edgarian, author of the novels Three Stages of Amazement, Rise the Euphrates, and Vera. Her articles and essays have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, NPR, and W, among other publications. She is the co-founder of the nonprofit Narrative, a digital publisher of fiction, poetry, and art, and Narrative in the Schools, which provides reading and writing resources to teachers and students around the world. She lives in San Francisco, where her new novel, Vera, takes place. The year is 1906, and the great earthquake and subsequent fires level the city. We meet 15-year-old Vera, who is the illegitimate daughter of Rose, the proprietor of San Francisco's legendary bordello and crony to the city's scandalous politicians. Vera has been raised by a Swedish woman as her daughter alongside a sister named Pi. Rose finances their lives, but rarely sees Vera. After the city has been leveled, Vera goes in search of Rose as a means to survive and finds her own storehouse of strength to rise to the various struggles entailed in living in the post-earthquake world. We began the discussion with Carol Edgarian sharing what obsessed her before she began writing Vera. So I started... 20 years ago, collecting books on the 1906 earthquake and obsessively reading these things that talked about this catastrophic moment um, in in 1906. Um, First, the quake that leveled many buildings in, in my adopted beloved city of San Francisco. And then three days of fire that leveled 28,000 buildings and 500 city blocks. So really just wiped out the city. And it hadn't, it wasn't the first time this had happened. Actually, San Francisco has uh, burned to the ground five times. So five times it's had to reinvent itself. And that seems, that's always struck me as really interesting. But I didn't think I was going to write a novel about it. Um, It wasn't until the lead up to the 2016 uh, election 
when many of us started to feel that our society um, was in a really precarious place. And I started to imagine this question was sort of burning in me. In an apocalypse, who and what rises in the in the aftermath? Who and what rises? So then I started to think about writing an av- adventure story that featured a girl who is whip smart and contrary, who is housed but homeless, who is surrounded by adults but is unloved, who is looking for what um, what is true in a corrupt world. So the story grew out of the the confluence of those of those elements. Um, and I knew I had something when I wrote the line in Vera's voice, all my life I'd been waiting for a catastrophe greater than my birth. And then I was sort of off to the races. You know, I think for me, there's always got to be that confluence. In, 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 in my novels take me so, so damn long to write. And there has to be that kind of powder keg of po- the political where it meets societal change, where it meets a character or a group of characters bent on reinvention. So that seemed like an interesting moment, because what I didn't say also was San Francisco, at the time of the quake, um, the mayor was going to be indicted for graft, and the city was just, it, it, there was a there was a political boss boss who ran the town, a guy named Aberuff, and he owned everybody from the sheriff to the board of supervisors to the mayor. And they were all going to be indicted on April 18th, 1906. And instead, Ruff and Schmitz got the quake. Did you and know that? I knew that casually. I hadn't really read in great detail about it, about that aspect, until I started diving in on the book. And I spent about two years researching and, you know, going off in my, down many, many a rabbit hole, reading firsthand accounts, reading the newspapers, um, looking at photographs, and just thinking about this, this corrupt world, this world in which the mayor, Eugene Schmitz, was was not even really a politician. He was a violinist. He was good looking and he was susceptible to uh, taking bribes and a lot of bribes he took, <laughs> you said. And so this this like corrupt world that on one hand was rising and was glorious and had that sort of robust optimism that San Francisco's always had was also having a very dark chapter. And then the quake leveled everything, including what the systems that had been in place. And that seemed really interesting to me to play with that and seemed very relevant. Little did I know that, um, you know, the world of Trump that we would enter. And certainly I could never have predicted um, our last year of the pandemic. So that line that you mentioned, I'm curious if the voice is what drives you usually. I mean, you were talking about all these very like intellectual and heady ideas, but it really came from this line that just converged for you. So is voice what propels you? Yeah, very much so. I gotta feel that that blood flowing through a character's veins, a character with a deep urgent problem. And I've got to hear, in this case, Vera, I had to hear her. And I had I heard her on two levels. I heard her as a much older woman who is who is the narrator. And then I and then I heard the girl. And the modulation between those two voices and how um, the girl grows throughout the book and how her voice changes. And until I could get that essence of, you know, she she's a character who's in, in a hurry all the time. So I had, I wanted to create that quickness in the voice of the book. And that was really fun for me once, once I have it. And, and until I have it, I'm, I'm, I'm in the weeds. I'm just circling, 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 trying to find a comfortable place to land. With all of my novels, I, the voice voice comes to me first. 
I have notions of plot. I have notions of of material, um, but I have to hear it first. You were saying housed but homeless, which when you were mm-hmm. saying that, I was thinking, wow, like how do you even figure out what that might mean for a character to be housed but homeless? Because it seems like obviously this this big dichotomy. And so Vera, your character, is housed but homeless. She's 15 years old. She was born. Um, her mother is a prostitute, but also a, a businesswoman. And she just couldn't bring her up and made a deal with this Swedish woman named Mori and her daughter Pai to be part of their family. And so she was going to give them the comforts of life because they they didn't have money. So And she, Rose, her mother, had plenty of money. And so she was going to basically pay for Vera's life. And in exchange, they were going to raise her and also basically keep her their distance between her and her mother. And so she has this mother that's out there. She's not an orphan. She's longing for her, but she, and she gets to see her like usually once a year, but three times a year, three times a year. She gets to see her three times a year, but she's, she's kind of more or less. Well, she's, she's born into that complexity. That's sort of no win because on the one hand she's provided for, but she's not given the essentials of love and she's given um kind of a a a foster mother who doesn't really care for her who doesn't understand her and the mother rose you know is this madam and she's on a she lives on a hill so she's like she's just over there but you can't touch her you can't you can't ever hug her or or know her or love her all those all that level of yearning of and and 1906 what is expected of a girl what does society place on women i'm kind of you know in a way this is a this is a story of in which every character is put into a box and and when the boxes sort of collapse in the quake what do they do where do they go how do they rethink um and rejigger um and how and do they break free? And Vera, Vera in the beginning is, is, you know, she, when I say she's contrary, she's an independent minded person. So moment to moment, she's trying to figure out what is true. She is literally her name, Vera Truth. You know, she's trying to figure out what's true. I mean, there's another line early on in the book where she says, you know, um, I was looking for one adult, one single adult to show me how to behave because she's surrounded by everyone is a trickster. Everyone is a thief. Um, And when I say everyone in the book is a thief, I mean everyone, including Vera. And um, she's just trying to navigate. She's trying to see her way around things. And then, of course, um, and she's trying to find her own agency. And then the quake hits and all bets are off because it's about survival. And it's about coming out of the quake. Is there a moment when society is leveled? Is there a moment in before sort of society reasserts itself? Is there a moment characters get to find agency and get to um, those who are marginalized, those who are outcast? get to decide what what the fate will be. There's a little opening there. And I thought it was really interesting. I think too what's interesting about her because she's so wise and precocious and because partly of the money that the, her mother gives them, they live in a part of the city where they are connected to a lot of other people that are connected. She is friends mostly through her sister with the mayor's daughter. And so she has connections to these people in in power and these really corrupt people. She's smart and she's a survivor. And at the same time, she's dealing with this primal wound and this longing for her mother. That's right. And, and, and Rose is a madam, and she is running 
you know, this very successful business. And the madams were elevated in San Francisco at that time. I mean, the madams were highly respected as serious businesswomen. And Rose has that sense that, well, you know, if I provide for you, that's, that's what, that's enough. That's enough. And of course it isn't enough. And, um, but they're worthy adversaries. And as much as they're, um, they're apart, there's also when they come together, they're very much kin in, in how they think, in their ability to think. Um, and that was kind of interesting to me. It's always interesting to put, to put um, two people with sort of, you know, opposing desires, two characters with opposing desires and have them have that sword fight of, if they're worthy adversaries, how they how they um, how they get closer by through combat. So is that about how you you usually think about conflict in your novels is characters who maybe want opposing things or is that one piece of a much bigger puzzle? I think characters desire its desire. And of course, you know, in talking about desire, it's about vulnerability. I don't feel I have a character in hand until I know what he or she really wants. And and characters don't want in a casual way. Um, it's not really like life. I mean, their want is urgent. It has to, they have to have it. Um, and they're they're pretty much going to do anything they can to get it. Um, and so, I don't, in, in fiction, I don't think you ever or rarely have two characters with exact, uh, you know, the exact same desires. They're, they're often oppositional. Even, even when they're making love, they're often wanting very different things. Or um, when they come together, and, and I think through time, they have to earn those moments of, of connection, of actual, like, you know, union. I think my job is to is to present them with their fullness, with their what I call their wrong rightness. So it's their complexities, their contradictions, and most of all their vulnerabilities. Where are they weak and where are they strong? And and in that it invites the reader to have some sympathy for them. And does that come to you as you're writing, or do you sort of write a little bio for your characters before you write? Um, I never write a bio um, for them. I kind of, I put them in scenes. I don't, I don't think of it as a bio. I might, I might draft some narration about them or put them in a scene and try to get, try through how they're acting, what it means, what it means about them. Um, And, you know, I certainly, sort of walk my way into what is their story. You know, I think so much, Mitzi, about why I became a writer. Um, you know, I've always loved language. I was a fanatic reader from, you know, childhood on. But I was always wondering what makes people tick. I mean, my earliest memories, I can remember, you know, sitting at the family dinner table and we had a big extended Armenian family. And I remember like looking around the table thinking, you know, what? Why, why did he just say that? What's, what is that about? You know, um, it's wonderful to be able to, to, to spend all day wondering what makes someone tick. I love that too, because when you're really interested in human behavior, you could be a psychiatrist, you can be a psychologist, you can be, you can even be a physicist and think about consciousness. (laughs) So there's so many routes that can go. Right. And to be able to learn you know, to be able to go into the research and and learn, you know, learn about new, new, new things, new things that happened. It's been really fun in this book um, to layer a, a fictional world on top of a world of char- real life characters and to imagine what moved them, not just the fictional characters, but the real characters, you know, and I certainly gave myself license to give them language and and have them do things that you know the history books don't tell us they did. 
I want to talk about the constellation of characters around her, but I'm also curious about the first line, which says, I always thought of my city as a woman. And I think this book is, I mean, it's told through a woman's point of view. It's focusing also on her relationship with Rose, which is doing like the first profession. And um, there is so much female energy and, and trauma and struggle and triumph in there. Do you think about, because of that line, the like female energy of, of the book? It's really interesting. No, I, you know, I very much wanted to write an adventure story from the point of view of a girl and a girl who acquires wisdom as she acquires, um, quote, freedom, whatever that, whatever that is in her terms. But um, did I think about writing about a world of women? I'm definitely interested in the world of women. I think it's underrepresented. But I wasn't making a statement about that. I just sort of went where the story took me. And certainly there are men in this in the story as well. I it's interesting with my last book, um, I got a I got a note from a Jungian analyst who said, you know, I think you're I think you're brave to be writing in this time from from the deep feminine. And I I I thought a lot about that at the time um, because I think we have been in a moment, a societal moment that so devalues the feminine, the deep feminine. And um, I don't know, I, I, it's not something I'm sort of wearing on my sleeve. This is what I'm setting out to do, but it may be just my orientation of what I'm thinking about and, and what is important to me. I think, you know, we write from our own urgency. We write from our own questions. You know, one one element in this book that that feels very real to me is this this idea of displacement, this idea that we're all sort of looking for home, or so many of us are experience, experiencing, um, particularly in America, this the complexities of displacement. And in my own family, you know, my father's family came. Um, really, um, you know, with the trauma of the Armenian genocide. And on my mother's side, both my parents are first generation, and on my mother's side, her parents were alcoholics. Um, and when she was five, she was taken from um, her, her family home and put it in an institution, in an orphanage, where she remained till she was 18. So this notion of displacement on both sides and in my own upbringing, um, is something I'm. I, I seem to always return to. I think maybe I'm done with it now, but it's it's interesting to me of like where what is home? Where is home? And who who constitutes family? You know, um, Vera ultimately ends up with um, a chosen family, and they're not the people in the beginning of the book you would expect she'd end up with, um, and you wouldn't expect that she could trust um, them, but those are the people who show up at the end and who prove themselves to her and she to them. As you mentioned, she found a family, a community, and one of my favorite characters, and it's an interesting history in America, was this man named Tan, and he was mm. Chinese, and he was, he did a lot for Rose. I, I don't even know what you would say it. Like, he was he was in some ways, like, a fixer, uh, a supporter, a driver. He did many things for her. But Vera did not have a good relationship with him at first because he would be the one that, when it was time for Vera to see Rose, he would come and get her, and she... I think reported him to Rose that he was stealing from her, but they end up being the ones who are the true survivalists. They end up being the ones who look in the kitchen and realize there's food and they sell it to people on the street. They are the ones that rebuilt something from nothing. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about the creation of Tan and, and your research into that, that part of, of San Francisco and, and their relationship. I'm so glad you mentioned Tan because he's one of my favorite characters too. If you you know you you love all your children equally, but he he was he kept growing 
as as I wrote him and um, and my responsibility to him, I felt kept growing because here is a man. I mean, he was really Rose's major domo. I mean, he was he was a, a really accomplished chef. He was her butler. He was her fix it man. Um, he also was somebody who had a daughter he adored and a father he loved and provided for. So he knew a kind of correctness in the family sense of how a parent should love a child that um, was something very, obviously, we've, as we've said, longed for. And he teaches her that. And yet he is a Chinese servant in 1906 who, despite all his accomplishments, is, um, you know, conscribed to live in a basement on a dirt floor with cast off furniture who you know he he owns he owns nothing he's um you know and that it i felt the more i created tan's world and tan's family um i needed to show it in in its completeness in its complexity his complexity because of course he thinks of her as a real pain in the butt in the beginning um, she stands in the way of how he perceives Rose would help his daughter. She stands, you know, it's because of Vera's setup that he has to do an extra day of work at her house. He doesn't, he doesn't respect how Maury runs her house, all those things. But they're right, for, right off, they're worthy adversaries. And, you know, showing Tan both in, in in sort of Vera's attitude toward Tan in the beginning and his attitude toward her and where that goes moment to moment, where po after the earthquake, they find that they're the only ones they can count on. You know, they're the ones in, the, in that moment of survival who quickly figure out, you know what, this thing has happened. I mean, so everybody else was sort of in shock um, this thing has happened, and we're going to have to figure out how to survive. And, you know, for a long time, Rose isn't found, and they don't know if she'll ever get back, and they don't have any money. You know, how are they going to make do? And it's it's sort of in those incremental moments where they're both having, having they're at war, and they're also increasingly coming together and counting on each other until they become really true partners in every way. And, and there is a kind of, kind of love there. I don't know. I, I just really, I really, um, Tan, what, Tan was so, you know, the more I wrote him, the more complex and interesting he became. And the more, um, the more sympathy I had for him, because you know how much, how much could he break out of the box that society had put him in, and how much could his daughter break out? You know that's something that that the journey of the novel really looks at. And he's at extra peril because I mean the, you talk about how everyone's a thief because you know you take a city that crumbles and no one has food and no one has water and no one has shelter like it could become you know the Lord of the Flies or worse right. and so right. but he had he couldn't hide his identity on the street either so there was an extra threat to him his existence right. there right and what they immediately to Chinatown burned uh, one of uh, one of the first parts of the city that was decimated was Chinatown. And um, the, you know, the soldiers who were brought in, who were not local, corralled the Chinese and put them in an encampment in the Presidio, and they weren't allowed to leave. And, and Tan, Tan escaped, you know, do, doesn't go for that. So he, he's really confined to, to the, sa the safe harbor of Rose's house. But he has to risk daily just just to be on the street. And and that was, you know, when I talk about sort of a character's wrong rightness, it's also like where they have those moments where they show their personal dignity and where um, that gets challenged. I was always looking for those moments for Tan of where, you know, as a man, he both can assert himself and um, yet has to be very careful. And that tension, 
that that is inherent in his story of Justin being and and having this beautiful daughter. He names her Lathong, which um, not in Cantonese but Mandarin means beautiful one, and she is she is the one he lives for. You mentioned some of the the real characters. So Abe Ruff was the big mafioso guy in San Francisco at the time, and then Schmitz was the the mayor. How did you start writing this and then fold in your research? And you were saying one of the joys was this fiction within this nonfiction world. Right. Well, I do I, I do a ton of research until my head's about to explode with all the factoids and tangential, unimportant um, little little nuggets. And then I sort of willfully forget everything. So, you know, it, I'm left with breadcrumbs, if you will. And, and I've got to build, I've got to build a world out of breadcrumbs. So I think all writers do this. We sort of play tricks on ourselves, you know, and, and, and through time you find what system works for you. So, you know, with Schmitz and Roof, how do, how to make, how to put Vera in their path? So, it's not just hypothetical corruption. It's right in her face. It's affecting her fate. Um, it's affecting the fates of everyone in in the story. And there's also a kind of voyeuristic joy in being able to go places on the page that you can't you can't in real life. Um, you know, there was a, the character of Alma de Bretville, who. Um, she really deserves her own 10 novels. Um, she was this beauty impoverished um, from fallen Dutch aristocrats who were really penniless. She wanted to be an artist. So she posed nude at the Art Institute to pay for art classes. Um, she became famous by um, um, suing a minor who had promised to marry her for personal deflowerization. I mean, I just love that. I had to, I had to bring her, you know, she sued this guy, this minor Charlie Anderson for 50 grand. Um, and on the, on the witness stand, she said, pets, it's called screwing. You know, I mean, she was just this incredible character and fast forward to, she marries one of the wealthiest guys in town and she becomes, um, she builds the, the San Francisco Legion of Honor, one of the great art museums in the world. And I mean, what an incredible character. And the city was full of those people in this sort of, in this time that even before the quake, San Francisco was still kind of a murderous, rough, uh, entrepreneurial, uh, hubristic place where everything was a little oversized. And the houses, painted ladies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, isn't that from the prostitutes? Sure. Sure. And, you know, those houses, the famous painted ladies, um, exist because the fire was stopped two blocks, three blocks from there. Um, by um, they went up and down um, one of the widest avenues of town and Van Ness, and they dynamited all the great mansions. I mean, can you imagine? Imagine you've survived the quake. You're in your grand house with all your art and silver, whatever. Knock, knock, knock on the door. You have 45 minutes to leave, and we're blowing up your house but they had to create a fire break or the whole town would have burned. So they stopped it right at Van Ness Avenue. But I mean, I just, you know, just to visit those moments, you know, I, it's so fun to think about in those moments of if you were leaving your house, what do you take and where those mistakes happen? You take sentimental things rather than the pot and the heavy pair of boots that are going to help you survive. I, you know, human folly, human mistakes, that's where I think, I don't know, that's, that's one of the things a novel can do. It can, it can, it can connect us to one another, it can connect us to what is universal and um, both our folly and um, what we manage to accomplish, how we manage to survive. 
Did researching this make you, I mean, you've lived there for a long time, you know, you know where you live and, and the, the risks there, but did it make you think about anything differently about either what you would grab in the event of this or, oh my gosh, I need more house insurance or. (laughs) Well, it definitely made me, um, and my, 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 my kids and husband, I mean, while I was writing this, because I, I've been obsessed about the quake and and sort of on pins and needles waiting, you know, every every shudder is like, is this it? Um, but I definitely put together an, uh, a sizable earthquake preparedness, um, big garbage pail um, at right by a door of uh, the door of our garage that you know has a tent and all kinds of things which most people in San Francisco have um you know and i we definitely keep extra water and things like that that just if you live in this town you you think about that you think about not having you know power not having you know, not having water because, of course, the water the water mains are are usually one of the first things that break. So, and I think about the folks in Texas in this last week and how shocking um, because they they weren't they weren't prepared. Um, it it would be awful on 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 any day, but to be completely blindsided. Did you get a sense when you were doing your research or writing this about how much of the economy and culture was maybe centered around the the sex industry? Well, you know, I mean, you have to go back to the founding of, of the city of San Francisco. It was founded by the miners, the gold rush miners. And the services that sprung up around the miners, the miners who had a ton of uh, suddenly a ton of money, they weren't particularly educated or refined. You know, what services would spring up around them? Well, prostitution was huge. And um, so that's, uh, you know, the Barbary Coast was um, very much uh, a fixture in San Francisco. And San Francisco in 1906 was really sort of just putting on its city, its city suit. It was still a really kind of rough town and a very new town. And, you know, I, I, there were, when, um, if there was a performance, you know, when some of the madams would arrive, people in the audience would stand up and, you know, give them an ovation. They were respected. I mean, they were, they were central. I never want to, I never want people to be uh, characters to be representative or stereotypes. So I always try to work against them by giving them both capability and complexity. So um, the sex workers in the book um, have their own story. And of course, they have to survive too. And they end up being various teachers in, in how, how, um, how to build community because they understand community. They understand um, chosen family and, and they, they understand loyalty because that's, they, they need it to survive. And um, they end up, uh, you know, Valentine and capability end up being really central to her life. And I love their names. I mean, it was really fun to capability Jones and Valentine and Mercy. Their names gave me a lot of who they are. Your character Vera has a long life. And I was thinking a lot about people who were about her age or older, like old enough to have consciousness and memory and to evaluate and analyze what happened in a more adult way. So not like a three-year-old and how like, I mean, she lived a long life, but even in the, say the 1970s, there were probably a lot of people left who had seen this. And it was like thinking about what it was like in the 1970s when you had like the Grateful Dead in in San Francisco. And then, and then these people in 1906 in this other world of minors and prostitutes and uh, what they'd seen in their lifetime and how fascinating that was. Yeah. I mean, think about living through the 20th century, how much change you would have witnessed. 
you know, it was still horse and buggies in 1906 with some cars. But, you know, fast forward to, um, you know, the next 75 years, you know, all that, the penicillin and the beetles and the silicon wafer and, you know, all the things that have changed, so radically changed the technology that so radically changed our world. I know this book will be called historical fiction, but I, I kind of chafe at that because um, I think I think yesterday was historical. You know, I think it ha- it can't, uh, I didn't want the book to read old timey, you know, so it was important to me to have, for Vera to have, have that breadth of time. So her voice is actually quite modern, the voice, the narrator's voice. Um, because I think with all the change that's happened in, in, in the last hundred years, the human animal hasn't really changed. And so, and that's, that's the story I'm telling, um, you know, getting back to what makes people tick that we re- we really, unfortunately, or fortunately haven't really evolved all that much. So, um, I think, I think a novel that is set back in time or is set in yesterday has to work on that universal currency of how humans connect and fail to connect. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I, I, I surprised myself in thinking about that question and returned to one of my favorite stories, Alice Munro's The Progress of Love, um, and that I hadn't visited. I used to teach the story all the time, and I hadn't visited it in a few years And um, here's how the opening um, half page goes. I got a call at work and it was my father. This was not long after I was divorced and started in the real estate office. Both of my boys were in school. It was a hot enough day in September. My father was so polite, even in the family. He took time to ask me how I was, country manners. Even if somebody phones up to tell you your house is burning down, they ask first how you are. I'm fine, I said. How are you? Not so good, I guess, said my father in his old way, apologetic but self-respecting. I think your mother is gone. I knew that gone meant dead. I knew that. But for a second or so, I saw my mother in her black straw hat setting setting off down the lane. The word gone seemed full of nothing but a deep relief and even an excitement, the excitement you feel when a door closes and your house sinks back to normal and you let yourself loose loose into all the free space around you. Why did you choose that? I love, you know, Alice Monroe uh, said that a story is a primordial event you can't do anything about. I love that because it's so true and it's so, uh, it speaks so much to her work. But the complexity, you've got, you've got um, three characters, you've got a family, you've got um, the society of the country manners, you've got, um, you've got the, the habitual, how are you? all preamble before your mother is dead um, and how it's delivered and the tension she creates in half a page. And then, of course, you've got the problem of the story, which is your mother is dead and here we go. And you've got that she's divorced. I mean, the amount of story that she packs in and seemingly in a really casual, leisurely way in you know, half a page is just so amazing. It's just an amazing piece of work. And, um, you know, I've, I've learned so much from, from her work and, um, you know, in my work at narrative with narrative, um, it was one of my great joys to, um, edit one of her last stories that we published and, so in, in just thinking about a page that, that really talked to me, it was really fun to go back to this page. Um, I could talk about it for a long time. Can you read 
something that you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah, I'll read read a little bit from Vera. As we ran up our front stairs, I glanced over my shoulder. I was 15. Then as now, I was impatient. Then as now, I was in full possession of my adult mind. I had no power, no experience. My worldview was as flat as, as my girlish chest and as hollow as my longings. I was neither winning nor sweet. I was alone in every room I entered, but I could see things. I could see where I was and where I needed to go. So I made my birthday wish. I flung my heart high over the dairy farms of Cow Hollow to Lafayette Square, which sat like a fat queen on the throne of Pacific Heights. There at the top of the hill was a great house of many rooms where my real mother lived. I saw her just a few times a year on Christmas Eve and on a random night when the flesh trade was downtown was running slow. And on this, my birthday, I was always wishing to be with Rose. At midnight hours from now, she'd send for me. Her driver would arrive in a fancy blue Model F with glossy red-brown paint and black leather curved seats. He'd approach in the dark, lamp headlights dim, just the chick-chick of the motor, then that too he'd cut, the car gliding noiselessly to a stop in front of our house. And with all our neighbors asleep, no one would be the wiser that the most successful madam of the Barbary Coast, the very Rose of the Rose, was coming to fetch me. No one would know she was mine. Why did you choose that? I'd written parts of that um, in early, early, early on in the book, but they were not, they were in different places. And so it was not until, you know, fairly far along in a, in a, in a draft, um, in revision that I, I juxtapose some of those things. And there, and it's a wonderful thing when you sometimes put, put things next to each other. They do new things. They sort of create new heat and new complexity. And, you know, we're, we have been holding for the first 20 pages. What, what is Vera's birthday wish? And that gets revealed in the same moment that her hope, her, you know, her hope is, um, and her expectation is that she will see her mother, but of course, her mother isn't a normal mother. Her mother is the most successful madam of the Barbary Coast, and she's a secret. No one knows that she's mine. So I, I had a long relationship with with those with with some of those lines, and and um, it was a surprise to me where they ended up and how they came together. Where do you write? I have an office in, in our house. We live in a Victorian and I have an office. Um, and I love my office. Um, so I do a lot of writing here um, late at night, really early in the morning. Um, and I migrate back and forth from this place where I am now to my kitchen table. My kitchen um, gets 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 sun in the midday and um our house is kind of chilly um so i like to sit at the kitchen table with the sun over my shoulder so i sort of go back and forth kitchen table back up to here back down there sometimes sometimes if you move you actually have the illusion that things on the page are moving and what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing i take long walks every day with my dog um couple couple walks a day often sometimes more um and i also i've been i i practice yoga i've been doing yoga for a long time so um often you know it's moving it's moving so whether it's it's uh doing a yoga practice or taking a long walk and if I'm not doing that, I'm I'm with my kids and my husband. My, you know, I I spend a lot of time with my family and love to cook. Love to, in in normal life, um, I love to have people around my table. 
Um, that's the Armenian in me. I have to make too much food and watch people eat it. It gives me great joy. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I wait a really long time. I'm really far down the road before I show anything, though I will talk story. Um, but I always, my first reader is my husband, Tom. He's a great reader. He's a great editor. So um, I feel very fortunate. How have you dealt with rejection? I, you know, um, I wish I could say that um, I think rejection is a great teacher. It's a teacher of reevaluating what your your intention was and and how successful you were at achieving it. So it's 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 scalding and painful, but it's also once you get on the other side of it, it's sort of like, okay, what information is this? what what did I need to know? And sometimes sometimes I needed to know that i I did not. I didn't achieve what I what I wanted to achieve, or I didn't cross cross the river, and make my reader feel what I was trying to convey. And sometimes rejection is just no. I I believe in what I'm doing, and that was the wrong person, or or the wrong vehicle, and and that's information too. And what is your favorite word? I'm gonna I'm gonna beg of the judges to to give you. Um, what is three words? It's garuchigar, and it's Armenian, and it's the beginning of every Armenian tale, and it means there was and there was not. Wow, that's beautiful. Garuchigar. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, and um, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. This was a gift. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Carol Edgarian, author of the novel Vera. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Jennifer Egan, who talks about her novel Manhattan Beach, which takes place during World War II in New York and focuses on the only female scuba diver working at the Navy Yards and how her life is tangentially intertwined with the mob. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Viet Tan Nguyen, Anna North, Mbolo Mbue, and Leila Alamar. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.